Psalm 51. Good to see everybody this morning. Well, it's a good summer. Seemed like it flew by like always. And um, I'm thankful this morning. Um, you know, we pray for the global church, and uh, probably by the end of this message this morning, um, you may see what I look like a little bit when I preach in India. So I'll probably be sweating a little bit when we get at the end. But you know what? We get to worship Jesus this morning. And um, we Americans, we need a little discomfort from time to time, certainly spiritually. But yeah, they'll get the, the AC fixed whenever they get fixed. We, get, we have an open Bible in front of us and we have each other. Praise God. Amen. Psalm 51, while you're flipping there, Justin's going to walk through a few things at the end of our service, uh, very important announcements. But I just want to mention one thing. In our family meeting last um, Sunday night, we, uh, we, we're starting back what we call administrative ministry teams here at Cross Point. Uh, for members to serve in different aspects of the church. There's a sign-up sheet under the people in place table back there. Um, if you are interested in serving on one of those teams, uh, please sign up, and uh, we will be um, in, in contact uh, with you. Signing up doesn't put you on one of those teams, but it expresses interest to serve. So I just wanted to, to make mention of that, and Justin will, uh, will bring some more to us um, at, at the end of the service. All right, Psalm 51. Last week, we looked at the seriousness of sin. And uh, we're going to be in Psalms next week also, and then we'll transition um, to our, our fall series, eventually get back to Acts. But one of the things that we looked at last week is how sin is something that universally unites us. The Bible teaches that we're all in Adam. Adam and Eve are our original parents, and we inherit not only from Adam and Eve, but from our own parents, a nature, a propensity of depravity to sin. And that's what unites us all as, as people. I, I threw out a quote to you last week that uh, the, the, the sinfulness or depravity of man sometimes is what people argue against the most, but it's the most easiest thing verifiable about human nature, right? 16th Avenue, Dollar General, Walmart, grumpiness when we get out of a comfort zone. Our depravity comes to the surface really quick, and we can see it in others, and it's amazing isn't it, how quick we can see it in other people and not in ourselves. but it's all there. And we learned last week that oftentimes we treat sin as something that we tolerate or something that we prize and cherish rather than seeing it as something dangerous. And last week in the book of 2 Samuel, we learned how David started blowing through these red lights or warning signs that God had put in front of him to say, stop, slow down. Don't, don't let it end up in this mess. And Psalm 51 is a result of David fully embracing his, his sin, fully owning his sin, fully understanding the seriousness of it and crying out to God for it. Psalm 51, let's read the first 10 verses again together. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then listen to the prayer in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, we ask that you would help us today to grasp not only the seriousness of sin, but why we have hope even in our sin because of your great loving kindness. And Lord, I pray for all of us today that no one would despair in sin, that no one would continue in sin, that no one would play with sin or be beat down with sin to the point that they feel hopeless and in despair. But God, even in the midst of our sin, as we find ourselves in a pig's pen and slop and mess, that the hope of the gospel, not just for the unbeliever, but the hope of the gospel in the life of every believer, that we're reconciled with you, Lord, first and foremost through Jesus. And God, we maintain relationship. You hold on to us because of what Jesus has done. So Lord, as we look at this morning how to confess our sin, how to deal with it, would you please give us insight and help from your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Way of reminder from last week, I want to put back up here as we talk about confessing our sin. David uses four words in this psalm about what sin is. This is how we looked at it last week. We learned last week, the, these are four different Hebrew words. I know they're English on the screen, but David uses four different Hebrew words to describe sin. The first word he uses was transgression and the idea of rebellion. The idea of looking at God and saying, See you later. I'm going in my opposite direction doing my own thing. He also uses the word iniquity, which is perversity, the vileness. Remember last week, almost like the nauseating nature of sin, how twisted and wicked and perverse it is. And then he uses the word Hebrew word chata for sin, which is failure or missing the mark. And then one time he uses evil, raw, this moral, ethically bad term, the antonym of God's character. And so last week we said that David, inserting all those in there, help us to understand that sin involves rebellion, guilt, filthiness, rottenness. And so what we're going to see today that when David begins to confess his sin and come honest with his sin, the way that he confesses is he uses all these different words to totally deal with how sin has affected him. Great story one time dealing with confession. This is in Scotland, and there was a man that was preaching, and first night, second night, it was like a four or five day meeting. The second night, he saw a man in the middle of the sermon get up and walk out. Now, usually when that happens, either two things are going on. We as preachers understand that people have physical needs. Sometimes they need to go to the bathroom, or they got to blow their nose. But, but sometimes when people leave, you say, they are royally ticked at me, they're never coming back, and they, you know, they just won't be there. Um, sometimes in Mississippi and in the South, they may do that but sit there the whole service. Okay, So anyway, th- this guy got up and left. And so what's going through the preacher's mind is, he said, well, he's gone, I'll never see him again, he's angry at me, he's mad at me. The last night of the meeting, a few days later, the man showed back up. And... He came to the preacher after the end of the service, and he said, do you remember what you were sharing the other night? And he said, oh yeah, I remember I was preaching on sin. 
And I made this statement, God won't cover what you've got to uncover. God won't forgive what you've got to confess. And this man said, when you were preaching along those lines, I heard a puppy barking. What? Preacher's like, I didn't hear a dog. Did, you know, what's going on? He's like, I heard a puppy barking. You heard a puppy barking? Yes, not with my ears, but with my soul. Please explain, sir. Please tell me why you heard a puppy barking. And this man was in his 50s. He said, when I was a teenager, I lived next door to a farmer. <laughs> and he had a brand new batch of puppies. And so one night, I snuck over there to the barn of where the puppies were, and I stole a puppy and never obviously returned it. Obviously, the old man never realized where it was, and he said, the other night you were preaching along these lines that God won't cover what you've got to uncover, and I realized in my life I never addressed that sin. He said, and it just haunted me that over the years, the very fact that I was a thief, now you may say it was a puppy, it wasn't $10 million, Stealing in God's economy is stealing, right? And this began to haunt him. And so he said, while you were preaching along this, I got, not, I got up not to leave, to never come back. I got up to go deal with my sin. He said, so I, it took me a day to, to get to that place because I don't live there anymore. And I went, and the old man had obviously passed. And so listen to what this guy did. He said, I went and I paid for the puppy, and then I paid 40 years interest on top of it. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever does not confess his sins, whoever covers his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. Now, understand the principle. I'm not, I'm not here this morning to, to be the, the paranoid sin police and try to drag up every ghost of your past. What I'm saying is what seems small in our minds is big before God. And when we come to this text, I think it's very important that we understand, again, what's going on in David's mind, what's going on in David's life. Isn't it interesting, last week we learned that David neglected going to fight war, and that's how he got in this situation. Think about this way. He avoided war on the war front, but he created war on the home front. In not going out and carrying out his spiritual responsibilities, what did he do? He created a war that would haunt him the rest of his life. Rather than fighting sin, he surrendered to it. I love what Alistair Begg says here. As we think about this psalm, as we think about how David got into this mess, David was not in a moral dilemma. Begg says he was in an immoral dilemma. And isn't it amazing that the same man, Alistair Begg goes on to say this, isn't this the, 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 the same man that by the very command could summon another man's wife to come and by his word he could commit adultery with her and by that same command he could send that woman's husband to the front lines into the hot spots of battle and basically de facto by his word command his death. But here David can't do anything with his sin but confess it before God. Can I just tell us this morning we do not have the power within ourselves to deal with our sin. We don't have the ability within ourselves to cleanse ourselves of our sin or to forgive ourselves of sin. We don't have the ability within ourselves to deal with our sin. Sin is only dealt with one way, and that's death. The wages of sin is death. 
And you can imagine in the days that followed this until we see when Nathan comes, David probably said what? No, let's just move on. That was unfortunate. That was a, I, sh- I probably shouldn't have, have, you know, called that guy's wife. I probably shouldn't have sent that guy, but there's more important matters to take care of. C.S. Lewis, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. But mere time does nothing either to the fact of sin or to the guilt of sin. Time does not cancel sin. And so as we approach this text, we see that eventually David had to deal with his sin. There was a man that was dead. There was a woman who had been violated. There was a a baby bump now of 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 a new life. And David couldn't avoid it any longer. I want you to see first this morning... So how do we deal with this? And and I do this morning want us to move from the seriousness of sin to the positive aspects of the hope that we have. But but you got to understand, if if we're seeing sin as rebellion and vileness and evil and, and failure, and we want to get and believe that God can completely heal us, and forgive our rebellion, and cleanse us, and as these verbs that David used, purge us, we got to understand that the bridge from complete sin to complete healing is confession. That's the way you get there. And that's what we see in David's life. I want you to see first this morning that confessing our sin begins with conviction. Now, isn't it amazing that every word in the Scripture is inspired by God? And I want to make this point not from verse 1, but before verse 1, like verse 0, okay? The, the, actual, the actual like subtitle of the psalm, because this would have been in the Hebrew. Notice what it says. To the choir master, a psalm of David... When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, we're told how this psalm came into being. We're told why David is praying this way, why David is crying out, why David is asking God to do all these things. Now, obviously, this is 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let, let, me just, let me just let you know that David did not get away with his sin. Last week, we stopped at the cover-up, and that's where we stopped. And so Bathsheba's pregnant. David has now taken Bathsheba as his wife because he's killed off her husband. And so the timeline's a little foggy. But when people see a grieving widow and they know that her husband's dead and they see the king caring for her, now maybe everybody's, you know, mind will be foggy nine or ten months later. Like, oh, that was, that was David. That's David's baby. You know how verse 11, or verse, chapter 11 ends? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David tried to move on, but guess what? God wasn't. And so chapter 12, you can just write this in your notes. It won't be on the screen. Chapter 12 is how Nathan, the prophet, begins to confront David's sin. And the way that Nathan does this is he, he goes and he tells a story to King David. And this is the, the summation of it. There was a rich man, there was a poor man. The rich man had tons of cattle, tons of uh, livestock, and all this poor man had was one ewe lamb. And his children loved it, and he loved it, and he would sometimes take a nap in his arms. And the rich man had a friend that came out of town, a traveler. And so rather than taking of his own livestock to provide for the needs of the traveler, 
The rich man went to the poor man and basically took by force his little lamb and killed it and fed it. And Nathan tells this story and David just gets mad. And David goes, that guy should die. How dare that he do that? And the prophet Nathan responds, David, you're that man. You're that man. You're that man. And this is where David's heart melts. I want you to see, first and foremost, the idea of conviction. And what I mean by conviction, the word conviction literally means to be declared guilty. Evidence is presented, and guess what? It's obvious, super obvious. Nathan goes and is an instrument of the Lord to bring conviction. Now, this is what I want you to see real quick about conviction. Conviction comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit, he's the one that convicts. Jesus told us in the New Testament that when he has come, the Spirit of truth, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Isn't it amazing how so much in our day on TV, among people that may profess the truth but don't teach it. Isn't it amazing how there's so much, quote, Holy Spirit language, Holy Spirit gifts, Holy Spirit success, Holy Spirit work, but very often there is nothing about sin that attaches to that. We're so thankful the Holy Spirit's here with us today, but you never hear about sin. Jesus says that the first job of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. So guess what? If we don't want to talk about sin, if we don't want to deal with sin, guess what? We're not along the same lines as the work of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Before you claim the giftings of the Spirit, the primary gift of the Spirit in His presence is to convict us of sin. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. But I think this is really good too. Conviction not only comes from the Spirit of God, conviction comes by the Word of God. When Nathan comes to David, the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him. Nathan went not with his own words. I guarantee you this story, because it landed and hit and stuck, God had given Nathan this story as a way to illustrate the seriousness of the sin. Conviction comes through the Word of God. Conviction comes through the truth of God. This is why D.L. Moody said, sin will keep you from the Bible, and the Bible will keep you from sin. The more that we are filling our minds and hearts with God's truth, guess what? In our spirit, we'll be warned against that. We'll be warned against those thoughts and those actions. Or guess what? When we think those thoughts or when we speak those words, you ever said something and as the words leave, you're like, come back, right? Or you do something and immediately, guess what? Not somebody's opinion comes to your mind. Chapter, verse, phrase, word comes to your mind, Right? Best one the Holy Spirit loves to use with me. In marriage, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I wish I had a quarter for every time he brought that verse to my mind. And it's not because Lauren's hard to live with. It's because I'm a sinner. Isn't it interesting, by the way, a little, little, little extra here. Isn't it interesting that Paul was the, uh, the, the single one, and he said, husbands, love your wives. Peter was the married one, and he said, live with your wives. You know, that was the command. There you go. He had a little experience, right? This idea of conviction. The Word of God brings conviction. Can I just tell you, even on a morning where the air conditioning's working semi, we're going to still teach the Word of God because we're not going to neglect the truth of God. We need it. 
We need it if we were sitting outside like our brothers and sisters in Africa under a shade tree where it really is 108. We can all feel that. Blows my mind sometimes. I remember, I told you this story a few weeks back. A, a, a lady in Africa came to me when I was a, a summer missionary. She'd walk an hour and a half one way because she wanted to hear the truth of the Word of God. This is how God convicts us. But conviction also comes through the people of God. And specifically here, this is Nathan the prophet. This is Nathan the messenger of God. But it's not just for prophets, it's not just for preachers. You know, we're told at the end of the book of James that if you see your brother going in an evil way, in a wrong way, guess what? You need to go grab him. Galatians 6, 2, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that your sins may be healed. Guess how God brings conviction oftentimes? Through the people of God. And this is why we, 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 we try to have community here. This is why we encourage you to get with two or three or four other brothers and sisters consistently and pray for each other and pour into each other's lives. Because a means of conviction to call us on our sin is the people of God. You see this in the apostles' life. You go to Galatians chapter 1. Paul goes up before James and Peter, and he's like, I preached this gospel for 15 years. Was I wasting my time? And James and Peter go, and John go, no, man, that's the gospel. And the next chapter, Paul's hanging out, and Peter does something shady. He won't eat with Gentiles. And Paul says, I stood up in front of them all and called Peter out. Even in the apostles, you see them submitting to one another, calling one another out on their sin. And obviously, this is redemptive. This isn't like to get people. This is why when we sign a membership covenant here at Crosspoint, we say that we will be willing to submit ourselves to church discipline if necessary. That doesn't mean we go get our mag lights and shine in your eyes and everybody's got to be paranoid, but check this out. We love each other too much to let each other live in sin. I was clapping. Let me say it again. We love each other too much to allow each other to live in sin. And so notice what this conviction may... So, so what's, what's great is here is that this small little preface here helps us understand why he wrote the psalm. Because it was by conviction from the Spirit, by the Word, through Nathan, that David became aware of his need. And what? David became aware that he was guilty, dirty, fallen, and wrong. And when you read the psalm, guess what you start understanding? David says, I've transgressed. I'm guilty. David says, man, I've committed iniquity. I'm dirty. I've sinned. I've fallen short. I've committed evil. I'm wrong. Conviction makes us aware of our sin. Alistair Begg says it this way, real guilt is a gift from God. Conviction shows us that we cannot fix our wrongs, that we cannot fix ourselves, and that we are in need. God loves us so much to completely convict us of our sin. He disciplines us because he loves us. And isn't it amazing how God sent a prophet with a word from the Spirit to a man after God's own heart and called him on his sin? And if David can't get away with his sin, guess what? I can't and you can't either. And when God comes to confront us in our sin, you know what it is he's doing? I love you, I care about you, and I will not get away, let you get away with this because that in you must be removed if I am going to conform you to the image of 
my son. And so what does David do? Under conviction now, David confesses his sin. And that's what we see secondly this morning. Confessing our sin is agreeing with God in godly sorrow and repentance. Notice what he says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions. David is owning it now. David understands. Just like, look, 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 look at what he says. Just kind of walk through the verses that we read. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me, my iniquity, my sin. Verse 3, my transgressions, my sin. Verse 4, I have sinned. Verse 7, purge me, wash me. Verse 9, my iniquities, my sins. Verse 10, create in me. Cast me not. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. This dude is owning his sin. The essence of the word confess literally means to agree. In the Greek New Testament, the word that we have in 1 John 1, 9, you've probably heard this verse before, if we confess, right, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. The word there, homo logeo, which is homo same, logeo, to speak or word. So, so literally it means to speak the same word, to speak in accordance to adopt the same terms of language. One Greek scholar says that homo legeo means to say the same thing as another, to agree with, to assent, not to refuse, not to deny, to admit or declare oneself guilty of what one is accused of. Isn't it interesting here that David doesn't put the blame on Bathsheba? Well, she shouldn't have been up there on the rooftop. He doesn't put the blame on the Ammonites, going to war. He doesn't put the blame on his generals. And you know what? There is no mention of Satan here in the scripture in this chapter because the devil doesn't make us do anything. That is a false cultural lie from Satan himself. Poor devil. I know he's bad. He gets blamed for everything, doesn't he? Devil messed up the air conditioning. No, it froze up. Devil messed with that sound system. No, Daniel knows this. We've been at events when the sound system got messed up. It wasn't the devil. It was the fact that nobody sound checked right until right before the service. Don't, don't blame our laziness on the devil. Well, I just couldn't get my thoughts right this morning. Poor devil messed with me when I was preaching. No, you didn't study this week. Poor devil gets blamed for everything. No blaming anyone in this text except who? Himself. I did it, God. What is he doing? What does to confess? What does it mean to agree with God? First, it means that we agree with God on what sin is. Fourteen different references in this text to transgression, iniquity, sin, and evil. We agree with God with what sin is. We don't call sin a habit. We don't call it a slip-up. We don't call it just a slight mistake or a lapse in judgment. We call sin what God calls it, rebellion, treason, iniquity, perversity, vileness, Evil, but what does our culture want to do? Our culture wants to scale down sin. You have a slight disposition. You made an error in judgment. That was unwise. Yeah, it's all of those things, but ultimately it's rebellion. It is me, Luke Johnson, looking at holy God and say, no thanks, I'm going to do my own thing. And guess what? When I confess my sin, I call it for what God calls it. We find ourselves 
it's almost easier to repent once we acknowledge that which we need to repent of. If we call it for what God calls it, guess what? We eventually will be opposed to it. We'll eventually begin to hate it. We'll eventually begin to put it to death. To speak the same word, God calls it this, I need to call it that. And this is why he uses all of these words. It's been brought up before his heart, man, for me to take another man's wife and then for me to put that man to death and then for me to have this cover-up and for me to be a liar and a cheat, that's rebellion. Can't you imagine David sitting there saying, look at how perverse my heart is. I may have shared this before, I'm not sure. It's a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was an agnostic early in his life and he went to India to teach literature. He was a single man at the time, a young man. He went down at the river living in a village and he saw a woman coming down to take a bath. So he said, I'll swim across the river, sneak up on that woman, impose myself on her. She's a poor village woman. Nobody will believe her, and I'm, I can get out scot-free and do what I want to do. Says he crosses the river. He approaches the woman. He makes a sound. She turns around, and he realizes at this point that this is a leper. Her nose is completely almost fallen off. Her eyes are bloodshot red. She can't even speak because leprosy has damaged her vocal cords, and she just kind of shrieks in a non-human sound. And Muggeridge said, at that point, I had two thoughts. What a hideous woman, but more deeply, what a hideous heart I have. And can't you imagine David sitting in his slop of his sin? God, you're right. This is sin. This is evil. Agreeing with God, but not just agreeing with God for what sin is, but agreeing with God for, check this out, who he is. That's what confession is. Hey, God, you're right to call it rebellion. You're right to call it perversity. You're right to call it transgression and evil and sin because you are God. Notice what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is he saying? God, because of who you are, you've called this evil, and I agree with you. God, the words that you've spoken through your prophet Nathan, you're justified in speaking those. God, the judgment that you've made, you're blameless. You see what he's saying? God, your character of holiness and righteousness. David knew about holiness and righteousness. Read the rest of the Psalms. He extols the holiness of the Lord and the glory of God's righteousness and his justice. Righteousness and justice, O oh God, are the foundations of your throne. So what does he say here? Hey, God, I agree not only sin is what it is, but you are who you say you are, and I agree with that. He also agrees with God on what he's done. And this is it. We agree with God on what we have done. We agree we own the sin. It's us. This is what confession means. It means sin is sin, God is God, but guess what? I'm the one that did it. Just remind you of this verse. James chapter 1. Just listen to what it says. Why do we sin? James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Why do we sin? Because we tempt ourselves to sin. David blocks everybody out, and he says, I'm not going to blame anybody else but me. That's what confession is. We agree with God also on what we deserve. 
He's begging God here, don't treat me as a, what my sins deserve. You're blameless in your judgment, O God, but please don't give me what I deserve. He throws himself off on the mercy of God. The greatest question sometimes it gets along these lines is, God really is, there's just no way that God can punish sin in this way, and God can be so against sin in this way. I mean, God needs to give us a break. Let me just ask you a question. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. That's what what Lauren always says when I apologize to her. I'm sorry you married a sinner. She says that's the only type that were available to marry. (laughs) Think about if you're God. Well, first off, just live in your own skin for a second. Think about when somebody does something against you. you. You didn't incite it. You didn't contribute to it. You get messed over. You get violated or spoken against. Somebody cheats you. Somebody treats you less than human. Somebody treats you like a, a, just a mangy dog. Think about what's inside of you righteously. Not, I just want to go knock them out and this is what they deserve. But just think about how you're offended. Now think for a minute. What you feel at that moment is what God feels seven to eight billion times over every single day. How many times do you sin a day? Let's not count, right? We'll be hopeless and leave, right? Every single person on this earth sins numerous times against God every single day. Guess what? God is right to be offended by sin. God is right to be angry at sin. And this is what David says, God, whatever you do to me, guess what? It's not overboard. I totally, completely deserve it. And that's what confession is. There's sorrow. There's repentance. David is grieving because he understands what sin is. He understands who God is. He understands what he's done. And he understands that he deserves everything that comes his way. That's where confession is. That's not a radical definition of confession. That is a normative, biblical expression. If we understood sin, perhaps we would weep more when we confess it to God. Not to despair, not to be hopeless, but sometimes as you confess your sin, it's good just to sit in it for a minute before you just say, God, please forgive me. Because what can it be? It can just be like, I'm pay, you know, when I, when I go to check out something at the, at the store, I have a debt, and whether it's like you know, $2.98 or Dollar General, $18.58, I pull out the card and I swipe the card. At that moment, I'm not thinking that like electronically there's funds here and they're transferred. I'm just like swipe, tap, tap doesn't work, insert the chip, the chip doesn't work, whatever it takes, right? But I'm not processing at that moment the debt being transferred back and forth. And you know what we can do sometimes? When we confess our sin, we can just tap, swipe, insert the chip. God, you got to forgive me, and we move on. And we never ponder to think that that should never happen. So this sorrow, this repentance that comes along with confession is when we grasp what's going on at this time. Now, I do want to pause here, and I want to mention something. Why don't people repent? Or why do people avoid confession? Or in the charades or motions of confession, why don't people really confess their sin? This is, Paul, if you could put them up. I just want to walk, I'm putting them all up at once, but I want to walk through these just for a second. Now, 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 now this is going to hit some of us, and it should. You know why we don't repent? 
and confess our sin because we're concerned more about the consequences of our sin than the actual action of our sin. You know who that is? That's Judas. Judas and Peter did the same thing, didn't they? They denied Jesus. Judas goes and what does he do? He's more concerned about what's going on rather than the act of betrayal itself. And what does he do? He goes out and he hangs himself. What did Peter do? He went out and wept bitterly. One repented, one didn't. And sometimes you can be more angry at the fact that you got caught rather than the fact that what you did was rebellion against a holy God. And guess what? It's not true repentance. Another reason, we're more concerned about the horizontal effects than the vertical. And what I mean by that is, we're more concerned about how it disrupts our daily life. Well, I've got more challenges now because of this, or, or I'm going to have to deal with more of this because I did this. Rather than saying, the very fact that I lived in sin and got away with it should trouble me to as whether or not I'm truly in the kingdom of heaven. Can I just tell you this in love? If you live in rampant, continual sin and you love sin, and you continue in it, it doesn't matter how many times you come on Sunday morning, you are lost, and you need to be saved. And we love you enough to tell you that. Now, when we get saved and we start following Jesus, we don't become perfect. But you know what we start doing? We start hating our sin. We start fighting it. And when, we, when we're caught in sin, and when God exposes our sin, we repent because we're learning to hate that which displeases God. We're learning to get out of our life that which prevents us from being like Jesus. He says, against you, you've only have I sinned. Spurgeon has a quote, I'll butcher it, but this is the paraphrase of it. He says, what strikes me most when I sin, what stops me the most when I sin, is that my sin has disrupted my fellowship with God. Why don't, why don't we repent? Because we're more concerned about maintaining our self-image and our self-righteousness than being right with God. So don't get to the bottom of things. We don't, we don't confess our sins to other people and we don't confess our sins to God because we want kind of this pseudo image of ourselves because we think that we're better than what the scripture says we are. And it could even be the reverse. You don't confess your sin because you really believe that you are beyond repair. You're not. The gospel says that he's willing to forgive any and all. There's no sin that you've done can't be blotted out and purged and cleansed and washed because of the blood of Jesus. Some of us don't confess our sin because we like maintaining control over the situation. I see this one a lot. Somebody thinks that they can control the situation by, by not coming clean and coming honest with sin. You know what you're doing? You are killing yourself. It is better to surrender to God to confess your sin, to face the consequences, however big or however small you might think they are, than to hold on to it and squeeze off your spiritual life. David Crowder has a line, letting go gives a better grip. That's true. We don't repent because we're more concerned with feeling better than dealing with the root problem of our sin. I was sweeping our carport yesterday. And I just like, why didn't you blow it off? I just, yeah, I was sweeping. And the reason I was sweeping was uh, there was just junk there, and obviously, and I was just trying to get the main part of the carport off. Well, I didn't go to the corners, and I didn't pull stuff out of the way because I know nobody else has just like junk up against their 
cardboard walls. I may get an amen out of, like, Lauren while I'm sharing this. Um, now, if I wanted to, I could have taken everything out, because that's the tough part, right? And then getting every nook and cranny and then putting everything back in. But when you put everything back in, then you, you realize you have to reorganize everything, right? And so that takes more time. So all I did yesterday was I, like, drew a line that I was prepared to sweep and I was prepared to go no further than that. And where I was prepared to go no further than that was uh, I did move my lawnmower because I had to mow with it, so that was easy. But, like, everything else... So it's, it's just like there's a line where everything's swept and there's a line where everything's just like filthy. And I was prepared at that moment to say, guess what? At least from mere appearances, my carport is swept. And then I got on my mower and I mowed grass and I said, well, at least my carport's not that dirty because I, at least I tried to sweep it. And if you walked in there, you'd be like, dude, you need to sweep that. You need to get behind your little freezer. You need to pull your duck waders out that you hadn't used in two, two or three seasons. Laura's like, amen. You need to get all go. Why do you do that? Because I wanted to feel better about what I glanced at rather than dealing with the issue. And that's why people don't repent. It's because they just want to feel better, but they don't deal with the root problem of why they got there. And this is what David says, God, it's me that's the problem. Deal with me. It's not that I just don't want to commit adultery again or have a hateful thought. God, I'm the problem. Deal with me. Some of, us have, some of us have gotten to the place where we're just living in pseudo-repentance and pseudo-confession because we never get to the bottom of it. I saw my dad one time in high school. I apologized to him, and he said, I'm tired of hearing your repentance. I want to see it. And we don't deal with sin fully because we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves, and a tolerable view of sin and a cheap view of the cross and an apathetic view towards others and an inconsequential view of eternity. And so we don't deal with sin. Praise God, David gives us the roadmap here how to deal with it. Let, let's, let's land here. Confessing our sin is not just agreeing with God. It is a cry for mercy and help. David uses 18 different words here in Psalm 51 as a cry for mercy. Have mercy, blot out, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, wash me, hide your face from my sins, blot out, create, renew, cast me not, take not, restore, uphold, do good, don't despise, deliver me. He uses all these different words as a cry that he's in great need and help. How do we do this? Because this is a strange request, isn't it? If he knows who God is, and he knows he deserves everything coming his way, here's the question then, on what basis can he approach God, right? He, he can't approach God on being like, well, you know what? I wrote a bunch of Psalms for you, and I've, up until this point, I was a pretty good king. Like, it doesn't work that way. If you live perfect from this point on, your perfection the rest of your life, which would be an impossibility for you and me, would never cover your entire life, much less one day of sin that you've lived up to this point. It doesn't work that way. So, how does David cry for mercy? He first cries for mercy on the basis of God's character. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love. 
according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He comes to God, not on the basis of who David is alone. He comes and he pleads that on the basis of who God is, God would forgive. And can I just remind you of this this morning? We often like to live in two ditches. We like to think of God as wrathful and righteous and just and angry when it comes to sin, and he is. But if we only live in that ditch, guess what happens? We don't think that there's any hope when we find ourselves in sin. At the same time, we think God is a God of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so what happens is we treat his grace like a credit card and we never forsake our sin. We tolerate it. God's moral attributes are equally balanced. And so here David approaches God, not on the basis of of the fact that he's earned something. God, according to who you are, your, your steadfast love, your covenantal love, would you forgive me? Now, He only had this in part, y'all, but check this out. You and I can cry for mercy now because perfectly we look back on the basis of Christ's finished work. David was justified by Christ. He just didn't fully understand it. But you and I, the cross is where God was wrathful and righteous and just, but merciful and loving and forgiving and gracious. That's the only place where all of God's attributes collide perfectly, comprehensively, in a display to us. God can be righteous and he can be forgiving. God can be wrathful and he can be loving because the cross is where God met his standard or God offered forgiveness without lowering his standard on us. We learned last week, Stott said, we substitute ourselves for God, but what does God do in the gospel? He substitutes himself for us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. On whose basis? Not mine. Why does God forgive my sin? Because he's being faithful to Christ. And so when you confess your sin, come before God and don't plead anything but the blood of Jesus because that's what God's faithful to when he forgives our sin. A few more. We cry for mercy, and we cry for help because of what we've done and because of what we are. David says, I've been this way from my mother's womb, and this is why I do what I do. David says, I need your help, Lord. I not only need you to forgive me for what I've done, I need you to fix me because I'm the one that did it. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. God, fix me. God, just don't forgive what I've done. Fix me. Fix me. Sin comes out of the factory because I, the factory, am a sinner. God, fix me. Christian, we walk in this the rest of our life, and we we fight this, and we work through this, but this is what we should see. As we're being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, guess what? We find ourselves fighting sin. We find ourselves not completely victorious over it every point of the day. Praise God, we should get victory over sin in our life. But isn't it true the Apostle Paul, the more holy he got, the more he realized how sinful he was? First Corinthians, he's the least of the apostles. Ephesians, he's the least of the saints. At the end, in First Timothy, he's the chief of sinners. <laughs> the cry, help me, help me, help me. And as we approach God these ways, and we ask God, and we confess our sin to God, This is where we must end. We must believe his 
promises. If you approach God as he asks you to, you approach him humbly, you approach him on the basis of who he is, you approach him on the work of Christ, guess what? When he says you're forgiven, guess what? You're forgiven. You can argue with yourself all the day long, but all you're doing is arguing with God. If you don't feel forgiven, guess what? Give your feelings to God and trust what his word says. Feelings do not dictate the Christian life. The Word of God and the Spirit of God dictate the Christian life and reality to us. Justin's told us numerous times over and over again, preach the gospel to yourself. But practically, as we confess our sin, we need to be committed to forsake it. An attitude against sin. An attitude against this specific sin. And what that means is practically is not putting myself in situations where I'll be lured away or pulled away. Jesus said it this way, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet than to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is obviously speaking in hyperbole here to reinforce how costly, how destructive sin is. We might phrase it this way. If our smartphone causes us to sin, throw it away and get a cheap flip phone. If watching the news every day causes us to be enraged at everybody who's not of the same political persuasion, cut the news off. If being in a relationship causes me to sin, better to end it and even remain single for the rest of my life. Or wait for who God has for me. If social media causes me to build a kingdom up where I'm only consumed with the opinions of others rather than what God says about me, may I just delete my account. And on and on and on. You know, it's interesting we find about David. Later on in his life, when he's 70 and he's approaching death, he, he, he has uh, this problem where he gets cold. Some of you are like, yes, I do. And so what they do is to try to honor the king, they go out and they find literally the fairest young woman in the land so that she can sit beside him and even sometimes lay beside him and keep him warm. That is Old Testament, 900 B.C. We do not recommend that practice to anyone or and everyone in this day. This is not the kingdom of Israel. You know what the text says? They went and they found a young woman, and she carried out her job, but listen to what the Scripture says. David knew her not. Because when he walked through Psalm 51, he said, I ain't going back. Now, did he sin after Psalm 51? Sure. But he learned. And can I encourage you even this morning, even in the throes of your sin, God may take something that is so horrible and so guilt-ridden, and God can redeem it, and God can teach you. And that's what he says later in the psalm, when I deal with my sin, then I'll teach sinners your ways. Transgressors will be restored to you. God can take the woeful mess that we make of our life cleanse us, forgive us, regenerate us, make us new, and then use our life as a testimony to other people about how good he is, even in our sin. So this morning, 
Forsake your sin. Put it to death. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, John Owen says. So this morning, what sin do we need to confess? And again, I don't think we need to take the mag light out probe every area of our life in self-paranoia, but a simple offering of ourself to the Holy Spirit, a fresh and a new Holy Spirit, that which is in my life which is not like Jesus Christ. Please bring it to my, my mind. Please bring it to my life. Give me the grace to confess it to you. If it involves other people, help me give me the grace to confess it to other people. God, let me be clean. Let me have a clean conscience before you. This is what Psalm 51 is about. How much does God care about our sin? He killed his own son for it. Let's be a church that commits to this. Not perfectly, but striving to hate sin and love God more. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you that you give us the grace to give our attention to it. You give us the help to... Listen to it and give our heart to it. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would not love sin more than you, but that we would confess our sins, not conceal our sins. God, help us to be honest before you. Help us to be honest where we need to be honest. Help us to side with you and agree with you against our sin. Thank you, God, for your steadfast love. Thank you that you are committed to your people and that you will finish what you've started. Church, as we sit before the Lord this morning, how has he taken his word and spoken it to your life? Maybe there's sin that needs to be dealt with. We come on the basis of not our completely messed up record. We can approach God on the perfect record of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So perhaps there's sin you need to confess this morning. Be bold with that before the Lord. Maybe your sin affects other people, and maybe even in this, this morning before you leave, or this afternoon on a phone call, maybe you need to make things right with somebody else. Praise God for that. Christian, if somebody approaches you and asks for forgiveness, you offer it to them as many times as they ask, because God has done that with you. It's an opportunity for us to be right with God, an opportunity for us to be right with each other, but an opportunity for us to celebrate how God receives sinners like us. So I'm going to pray and we're going to stand. We as pastors will be at the back and around. A small group leader may be near you if you're in a small group. If you need to pray with somebody, come, come grab us. Talk to us after the service. Let's stand as we pray and sing this together. Father, thank you for amazing grace. Thank you that your grace finds us in our sin and yet you completely redeem us and restore us. So we pray as we ponder the sin in our life that, God, we would not only think through the great weight of it, but the great price that Christ paid to save us from our sin. Lord, work in our hearts. Bring things to our mind and, and life so that we may love you more than sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel's going to lead us in the song.